Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Tel Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Thinking Practitioner. I'm Whitney Lowe, and joined today by my co-host, Tel Luca. And uh, we're going to hear first off from our sponsor for today's message from Books of Discovery. Books of Discovery might be best known for producing Trail Guide to the Body, but we're also a whole lot more. We bring you the clinical learning tools you need to inform your intentional body work. Check out our kinesiology, pathology, and A&P texts. They not only build the foundation upon which great educators like Till and Whitney rely, but will also support you through your entire career. Books of Discovery is proud to support the thinking practitioner, and are offering a 15% discount when a listener enters thinking at the booksofdiscovery.com checkout page. Enjoy the show. All right. Thanks, Whitney. Thanks, as always, to Books of Discovery and our other sponsors. We are doing part two today of our discussion of challenges facing our field. We did part one in episode four, and we had uh, our own particular favorites, our greatest hits in terms of the challenges and the opportunities those open up. And Whitney, we left off with you. I think you were going to explore one of your challenges you perceived. Yeah. Um, and also, just a, again, a reminder, the, uh, as we were talking about these, I, I found it fascinating that we did kind of talk about these in terms of challenges and opportunities both, because I think we can sometimes slip into this place of just complaining about things and saying these are all our big problems and things facing us. But I liked that we framed that in terms of uh, the opportunities that uh, find themselves within there as well. So... Anyway, today uh, we're going to look at uh, one of the other ones that I want to bring up was the uh, issue of increasing the accuracy of our explanations of what we're doing um, and uh, sort of getting into uh, discussing why it matters that we explain things uh, the way that we or explain what we're doing with both our clients, maybe and with other colleagues and other health professionals that we're working with in conjunction with them. This to me is a, is a challenge because... There are so many myths out there about um, our field um, in terms of what happens. You know, the, we were taught lots of stuff. Uh, you know, I know many of you probably were taught lots of things in your early initial training that may have um, changed a little bit or the perspective has changed a little bit based on current research that's come up. And now we're saying like, oh, we used to think this, but now we sort of have a better understanding that something different is happening. So. This is a challenge because if you do not keep up with some of the current information and the, the research that is out there, you might be using um, descriptors or um, sort of narratives about what you're doing that might not be consistent with our current understanding of things. And so I do believe it is important for us to, to be accurate, as accurate as possible about what we're doing. And there are a number of different reasons for that. Number one is the more the better we understand what we're doing, the better we can sort of shape it and adopt it into various different um, you know uh, challenges to those kind of situations. Like if something you're doing doesn't work a particular way, and you understand why it should be working or what it's doing, you can adopt it and change it in a way that might help it work differently. But it's also very important, I think, for us to be able to have a good sound physiological understanding of why the treatments do what they do or what various different approaches do what they do. Todd Hargrove, and we'll try to um, put this in the show notes as well, Todd Hargrove wrote a, a wonderful little blog post about 
um, why it matters in explaining the things that we do, why we do what we do. And that's, uh, I would encourage people to take a, take a good read of that because there's some really good stuff on there. So um, what are your thoughts about that, Till, in terms of the, the difficulties or challenges that we face in, in explaining what we're doing? Well, let me make sure I understand what you're saying because you're saying some important things. You're saying accuracy matters for its own sake just so that we have a sense of how we do, how what we're doing helps. But then you're saying it also opens up possibilities for us to apply our work in more flexible ways. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I've got to say, uh, well, let me just let me help you unpack it a little more before I try to respond because it's a complex issue. Are there other costs of not being accurate that you see? Well, I think, you know, in some instances, um, it could lead us down a road of um, misinformation. Here's just one possible example of possible misinformation that we might transmit to clients who then transmit that to other health professionals who then form a perception of, oh, yeah, people who do, you know, soft tissue manual therapy, massage therapists, body workers, whoever, they don't know what they're talking about because this is I not current information. So, so if we're if we're citing mechanisms that don't have currency or don't have acceptance across the scientific consensus, maybe that doesn't reflect well on us. You're saying? Yes. Yeah. And, and I would say, you know, there's other instances where, you know, this is not going to happen to us a great deal because the majority of the work that we do is pretty safe with people. But there could be instances where an enhanced understanding of some physiological responses to certain types of work that we've done might uh, encourage us not to do that so much anymore. Just as an example, um, for years, I mean, I, back in the early days of, of training, I, I was taught uh, working on the iliopsoas muscle deep in the abdominal region with, you know, some pretty significant pressure pressing down on that to treat the iliopsoas to, to work on it. And a number of years later, uh, after... Um, exploring and talking to especially a number of people who are doing cadaver dissections and reporting very high frequency of the presence of abdominal aneurysms, oh. uh, aortic aneurysms in the uh, in the abdomen, yeah. saying that you know you've really got some potential to do some significantly harmful things in that area if you were to put pressure near the iliopsoas on the external iliac artery, which is a branch right off of the of the aorta there. And uh, that could cause a backflow of pressure that might be very dangerous for an existing aneurysm. So that narrative of what we do and, and explaining what we're doing would change based on our better understanding of physiology. Or in this case, pathology, some of the risk factors involved. Yeah. You could mm-hmm. say, well, psoas is a hot topic. I, I, it's amongst the topics I've caught the most flack for in the different uh-huh. articles I publish. So it's like waving a red flag, and a lot of people will come out of the woodwork to express an opinion on SOAS. So maybe, yeah. maybe I think we should have that for an episode, I'm thinking. I imagine we should. Yeah. yeah. But the, the, the larger topic you're talking about is accuracy in general. I'm just going to try to take a devil's advocate for a minute. And yeah. I, think the, I think the concerns or objections to what you're saying would, might be something like, well, who has the monopoly on accuracy? Mm-hmm. Who, who is it to say that your idea of what's accurate is the way that we should all be talking? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think this this calls into question, you know, is there some s- central authority that says that? I certainly don't think there is. And, I, you know, probably there's some degree of, uh, we'd like to think there's some degree of consensus of ideas on certain things, but we also have to recognize at a certain point that 
you know, when some findings challenge an existing narrative or an existing understanding, it's kind of up to that individual to say, hey, this is the evidence su supporting my reason for saying there's maybe a change in perspective about what we're doing. Or here's why there isn't a lack of supporting evidence for that. You know, the, for example, the whole thing with, you know, the sort of myth around massage being able to um, enhance lactic acid removal for years that perpetuated until enough of an understanding through physiological studies came out and said that doesn't really happen. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And yes, it does. And so here's the other possible objection. You mentioned currency. And what about the fact that our ideas are always changing, that what was current 10 years ago is now considered obsolete and maybe even uh, wrong? Yeah. I mean, that's that's a big factor. And here's another interesting one that troubles me about this, this idea of our, our drive behind you know, evidence-based practice or evidence-informed practice emphasizing, the, the, you know, following things that are published in research, there's all kinds of problems with how accurate stuff is that is published in research studies now that it's coming um, uh, evident because of some of the publication biases of some of the different journals, mm -hmm. uh, the way in which a lot of the articles get accepted into these journals. You know, for example, there's an incredible bias against articles that report negative results. So you're much more likely to get something published if you have positive results on a certain treatment procedure mm -hmm. or thing that you're talking about. And that produces a certain bias about whether or not um, you know, stuff that contradicts something that exists mm -hmm. is going to even get published to begin with. Publication so, biased. Yeah. But help me, yeah. help me get clear on which way you're arguing it. Are you saying that we should be more attuned to scientifically consensual ideas or that that's a problem? I think both those things are okay. true. I All think right. it's beneficial for us to to really try to stay as current as possible, but also not lose our critical and analytical thinking as we analyze new things that come out and say, you oh. know, is this really worthy of us changing a perspective about things? Because uh, it is tempting to sometimes just jump on the bandwagon and say, oh, this is new or different, this is all wrong or something's different because I saw it. You know, I hate to say it, but, but you know, the people who say because I saw it on the internet or because you know it uh -huh. came out in a journal or whatever, uh -huh. that doesn't necessarily mean the whole world has changed or the whole paradigm has shifted. Those things, mm -hmm. you know, we need to see: is there an accumulation of a body of knowledge that really supports those ideas? Mm -hmm. And you see that as a challenge facing our field. One of the big ones on your list. Yeah, it does. And it, it sort of taps into some other things, and we'll get into some of these a little bit later, but it's particularly challenging and difficult in our field, I think, because we don't come up through sort of an academic discipline of looking at research literature a lot in our field. Our whole educational system is not really shaped around that, and that's, of course, a whole other can of worms that we'll get into in a little bit. But um, yeah, I think that's that certainly is true. Was there more you wanted to say about that? Because I do want to respond, but I'm going to respond with a concern of my own that starts a whole new topic, which is... Well, let's, yeah, let's do, I think we can kind of spin off on on where we go go with that. So yeah, tell me what, what comes up for you. Well, that, that. that brings me to one of mine, which is the divisiveness or polarization or splits within our profession. Where yes, there's a, that's a big one. Yeah, yeah. where there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of diversity, but there's also a lot of polarization, meaning people that just think, people don't think like them are just wrong yeah and i uh it's it's a tricky realm because i am somebody with strong opinions and i got pretty clear values uh and yet somehow collectively not just in this field i see it in our field but uh, of course as a society we've lost the ability to agree to disagree 
Yeah. We've lost we've gotten we've gotten worse at least at having our differences of opinion. Mm-hmm. And one of my concerns or one of the challenges I see facing our field is that there are a lot of differences of opinion around, for example, what you just spoke about. The idea that accuracy is defined by science and currency is defined by science is desirable. That's even a debate right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that uh, that point of view, which I actually am sympathetic to, I'm a science geek guy, is polarizing in certain conversations. You go to you go to um, social media fora or places where any other point of view is polarizing, but that point of view itself can be polarizing in the right conversations too. Yeah. There's objections to a science-oriented perspective that are probably uh, worth considering, worth keeping in mind, in my opinion. And yet we, what we're losing is the ability to have conversations or have um, understandings that go beyond our own perspectives. That's my fear. Yeah, you know, and that's, I think that is so pervasive and it, it is a significant challenge and, and problem for us because I think a lot of this, you know, it's, I don't know that we really want to blame it on social culture in in, in our current society. You're talking but about like social media, seems, certainly exa- yeah. Yeah, exaggerates it. You yeah. get more clicks if you're stronger and more extreme in your opinion. So that, yeah. That. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to watch discussions in social media arenas like, you know, Facebook groups or something quickly devolve from academic debate into personal attacks uh, on people. And you wonder, like, how much of that would happen if these people were in the room together talking about this versus, you know, hiding behind an electronic screen where they can shout and yell at everybody. But I remember um, that in the 90s, the first forums that was a part of, we were discussing this, like, we can see now that we're interacting differently than we would yeah. be in real life. And that's become a well-established phenomenon. Yeah, things for it go bad over time. They get more and more divisive. They get more yeah. and more polarized. They get more and more acrimonious. And people quit. They don't want to do that. People get more enraged. They do want to do that. And that's just a, some sort of devolution that can happen in the situation. Yeah. So how, like, if we look at that through that lens of, of opportunities, how do we take this big challenge of communication and, you know, try to do something with it that helps us uh, enhance communication for the future. What do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's um, really, it really is the skills we need now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the skills of being able to uh, understand different points of view, being curious enough about them to really take the time to understand them, even articulate them. And then my own personal goal is to even be sympathetic to them, even if I don't agree yeah. with them or they don't resonate with me, to at least be able to put myself in those shoes enough to understand them. Yeah. And that probably is becoming old-fashioned, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, that's the opportunity there for me. It helps me examine my own narratives. It helps me uh, question and shake them up. And a lot of things in our field are changing along the lines of what you said. And uh, it it keeps me flexible, keeps me, um, yeah. you know... Uh, learning and growing. So some of the opportunities yeah. there. I saw a really good example of that. Just um, as a matter of fact, I think it was just today I was reading this, and I'll ask you maybe to just comment on it from your own personal experience. This was um, an article or a piece that you had written that just got published in the Terra Rosa e-magazine yeah. from Australia yeah. on your thoughts and perceptions from the Fascia Research Congress and the San Diego Pain <laughs> Summit, which... Are two kind he of, put those together, by the way. 
Oh, did Bless his heart. Yeah, those are two different articles. He converged. Oh, is that them. Yeah. right? He converged <laughs> them. Says this is interesting contrast and comparison. You mind if I meld them? Oh, that and is I said, excellent. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that's that's excellent. So, that that that's a really good. Um, I thought it was a very good demonstration of looking at both of these different perspectives because these two sort these two you know events are to me representative of some of these kind of different camps that exist in opposition to each other sometimes often in, in perspectives that are sort of thrown around out there in social media discussions and i thought you did a really good job of of talking about you know how do we see ourselves in these different arenas so um what was that like for you and being at those two events of of doing that well oh boy that's a big question thanks for the compliment first of all but it's yeah. challenging it's challenging because one split loyalties. My my background, my lineage, my friends, my community are in the fascial world pretty strongly. That's yeah. having taught at the Rolf Institute for twenty years, etc. And yet, my uh, interests, my curiosity, the possibilities I think are aligning toward the neurology of what happens, the psychology, the social aspects of what we do, the contextual effects of what we do which are less physical and more about the process of being alive. So there I was in the, the research congress, was about fascia, at, which was actually, as I wrote in that article, super exciting. I was so surprised and blown away about the amount of liveliness in that field because fascia yeah. has been kicked around for a long time in various ways. I mean, it was many of the, say, the biotensegrity, things like this, they've been concepts for a long time. And when... Uh, you know, somebody that's been in the field for a long time hears those things. Okay, so there's great. That's cool. There's more of that, and yet there's lots of of uh, so you could say refutations to a refuting of a, our old ways of thing, seeing things going on too. So I was really pleased to be in Berlin and be excited with all of the new dimensions that are coming out. the The catchphrase was, "It's about the liquids. It isn't about the fibers." It's about the flow. It's not about the fibers, that kind of thing, you know. I so like it's, that. It's about the liquids, not about the fibers. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. really okay. understanding the fluid dynamics of fascia and how it participates mm -hmm. in our immune systems and tissue repair and uh, the connection with lymphatics, con connection with other sorts of intracellular processes. Yeah, and, yeah, and that's a, a great example there, too, of how, you know, that, that shift in perspective amongst that community really is an example of trying to increase the accuracy of those explanations because there's been a pretty significant degree of refutation of the tissue-based models of changing soft tissue structure through manual therapy. Yeah, well, so, let's say that this way, that uh, we don't have a consensus anymore. Yeah. Whether they're thoroughly refuted and dead, who knows? It's certainly in some yeah. people's mind. You can go mm -hmm. to places in social media where that's clearly the case. There are you know, spheres or bubbles where that model has been debunked and debased and gone. There are other places you can go where it's very much alive and evolving and clear. So that's, that's part of the challenge I see to our field, that we, we've you know, uh, compartmentalized ourselves conceptually and academically into these different domains. Yeah. Where the, you know, there is evolution happening in each of them, but there's um, probably less crosstalk than I, would like, like, than I would like. So it was fun to go to both of those events within a few months of each other and in, and really get the sense of what's going on in each field and look for and my you know my interest is in really how does this expand my realm of possibilities as a practitioner look for the applications which really do transcend either point of view yeah neither one was particularly polarized i could say i got to say that the polarization seems to happen like you said on social media or in yeah, particular so. yeah in particular uh, 
individuals' opinions. But there are a lot of people that are, say, doing fascial research that involves a lot of neurology, for example, and a lot of understanding of experience as its own thing. And there's a lot of interest in the pain world about, say, the neuroimmune system and its, say, fluid dynamics and the fact that it's a physical structure as well as a psychosocial process. Yeah. So these are all, you know, interesting perspectives of, um, of I think, of different ways to to address keeping current. And, and uh, how would you say, um, do you have any particular suggestions or um, uh, ideas oh, or gosh, opportunities yeah. for people to how, to, how the best, how best to keep current with stuff so that we can challenge these ideas? Well, this, I'm going to ask you that too, because you, we didn't get your opportunities around mm-hmm. staying accurate, but that's, maybe that's yeah. where some of them lie. It, yeah. the, how best to stay current. I mean, for me, it's uh, diving into the stuff I'm interested in. Yeah. Even, I guess that taking it down to the practical level, even if it's just a little bit of listening to a podcast, here we are, mm-hmm. or uh, a little bit of uh, reading online or a little bit of talking to people, having discussions, talking shop with people, mm-hmm. you know, trading ideas. Uh, the amount of that you work into your diet, so your professional diet will keep you well-nourished in this sense, keep you diverse. And if, for me, it's actively looking for things outside of my spheres, outside of my bubble to understand yeah. how other mm-hmm. uh, points of view are seeing it and how they're talking. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is one of the, the true beauties of, despite all the headaches and you know craziness that social media has brought into our lives, to me, it has been one of the most wonderful opportunities also that you know we can have conversations with practitioners on the other side of the world in very close to real time uh, you know discussions debates about research studies or blog articles or you know books and things that are out there that make you start thinking about stuff and it was so much easier to stay in your own silo and bubble many years ago before that kind of communication was not available there so this is one of the cha- the opportunities that comes out of that challenge, I think, is the fact that there is so much opportunity to look at things from a different perspective based on the input that from other people that you would never have had the opportunity to communicate with or, or get to know previously before we had that kind of uh, open communication. That's a great opportunity. And then there's also an opportunity, I think, to go beyond the middle. You know, the middle has disappeared in our politics. Maybe the middle, middle yeah. has disappeared in a lot of ways. And it isn't about just having... You know, both sidesism is something I heard criticized the other day. The idea that you're trying to take yeah. both sides and stay in the middle and not take a position. Yeah. But understanding where the way I see things fits amongst other points of view actually helps me get clearer yeah. and stronger in the way I want to practice and what I value. Yeah. So there's an opportunity there as well. Yeah, great. Do you think it's time? Well, some, is that good for that? Should we? I think that's definitely good there. Yeah. So um, I think we're uh, we should probably take a break here real quickly and hear from our halftime sponsor. Who is our sponsor today? Halftime so. sponsor, Handspring Publishing. And the story there is that when I wrote my books, my advanced myofascial techniques books, I had two offers: one from a really big international media conglomerate, and another from a little tiny company in Scotland. It's made up of four people. And that's Handspring Publishing. And I chose them basically because my gut said they'd be a whole lot more fun to work with. And they helped me make the books I wanted to share. But their catalog over the years has really emerged as one of the leading collections of professional level books. They write them especially for body workers, they say, and for movement teachers and for all professionals who want to use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. 
Yes, by all means, they certainly have done a great job of uh, putting together a great catalog for the movement manual therapy professions. And their author list reads like a who's who for many of the leading thinkers in our field. So if you'd like to, head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com. And that's where you can browse this outstanding catalog of great offerings from them. And once you find those wonderful treats that you've got to have, hey, it's getting close to the holiday season. Well, probably by the time this episode comes out, it's going to be past the holiday season. So how about maybe beginning of the year treats for yourself? Your birthday. Go ahead. That's right. Yeah. Right. So uh, use the code TTP at checkout for a discount from them. Handspringpublishing.com, TTP. Check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So... Uh, Good. Uh, so we kind of uh, looked at a couple of those key things there. What else um, comes up that we need to, to look at with big challenges and opportunities? Oh, here? I got a few more. Should yeah. you, you want me to go or you want to go? Yeah, uh, go ahead. And uh, I think I, I talked a good bit about getting that. Well, other, well, whatever. Just, yeah, go ahead and tell me what your next <laughs> one is on the list. There. I want to talk about the discouragement I hear in our field. Okay. And I, I think, as I th- try to think it through for myself, I think maybe there's a distinction that's important between our field's uh, training aspect and our field's pras- pra- practice aspect. Mm-hmm. Certainly in the training aspect, the people that have really organized their work and their professions around training people, there's overall, I could say, there's a lot of discouragement. Partly because, Ta- yeah, you know what I mean? Tell me about that. Tell me what uh, what kind of discouragement you see. Can you give me some examples of what you're... I hear, I mean, I was shocked a couple times in the last year to hear a couple of my uh, colleagues in the training industry because they say, this is done. We're done. Mm-hmm. You know, the numbers are going down. People, new people, new people coming in is going down. It's plateaued. Uh, uh-huh. It's not happening. Certainly the number of schools has dropped enormously in the last decade. Mm-hmm. And the, the overall number of practitioners is still... Uh, growing gradually, but it's it's leveled off in this curve, and the number of people entering the field has gone down. Mm-hmm. So I think the training industry is super discouraged. Many aspects of people I talk to are super yeah. discouraged. Yeah. Do you agree? I would say so. Uh, I've heard those similar types of things that everybody, um, uh, many of the individuals that I speak to speak of, you know, much greater challenges here, both at the entry level for training, which is lots of schools having to close because of low enrollments and that just that sense of like there's something really, you know, unfortunate happening here. There are some other really not so good uh, fallouts of that as well, which is, for example, um, Libincott, Williams and Wilkins dropped their entire line of massage therapy textbooks. Um, and so, again, they saw this, uh, you know, industry or profession as a, as a area where they did not want to keep putting their money. Now, honestly, lots of the big publishers are struggling with what publishing is going to be looking like now in the next couple of decades, and many of them are moving away from their former emphasis on textbooks. But that is a uh, sort of a symptomatic uh, indicator, I think, of a lot of other things going on. But what you said in terms of the discouragement, yeah, I, I hear that a lot from uh, the uh, educators and other people who are having a hard time mm-hmm. continuing to do mm-hmm. the kinds of things that they were doing. A lot of people don't realize, for example, how expensive it is to offer CE programs mm-hmm. on the road, mm-hmm. you know, teaching and traveling. They see this as a big, you know, goldmine moneymaker for people that are doing stuff without recognizing that there's 
a whole lot of expenses that go into the other end of that. And for, for a lot of people, it's a lot of stress and a lot of effort to pack up your stuff and get on the road and go do all this kind of stuff. And <laughs> so it's not so it's not you, so fun if you're just well, barely breaking. Of course, you're, you're preaching to the choir on that one. Yeah. But as I, yeah. you know, it's poor us, us teachers who yeah. have to travel around and teach this stuff. What a great thing to complain yeah. about. But no, it's it's a big deal. And the, like here in Boulder, the closure of the Boulder School of Massage Therapy or Boulder College of Massage yeah. Therapy, hundreds or maybe thousands, probably thousands of graduates over the years who are, have emerged in the field as leaders and people in the profession. And to see their alma mater closing down because it couldn't get enough students is one of the factors. Yeah. was a yeah. big shock. Yeah. And how do you think that, um, I mean, because I have heard similar types of things from individual practitioners also, um, you know, feeling some degrees of discouragement. And this kind of taps back into some issues that we talked about in episode four around income levels mm. and, you know, uh, financial pressures from mm-hmm. franchise um, associations and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, does that impact the quality of care that individuals are getting from people who feel more stressed about being able to keep going and, you know, keep themselves um, moving ahead in this in this field? Good question. Of course it does. Yeah. You know, if I'm yeah. if I'm if I'm seeing more clients than is good for me, if I'm getting appreciated either financially or emotionally less than is good for me, then it's going to affect the quality of what I can do. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. So you know that um, also ties into one of the other things that I was seeing here as as another challenge um, as we're talking about this with especially with some of the uh, the educators that are. Are teaching a lot of, um, let's say, you know, coursework in the continuing education realm because it is interesting in our fields in particular how there is sort of this entry level training and then everybody goes to continuing education courses for advanced training or specialization later on down the road. Yes. And with fewer of those courses maybe being offered or fewer opportunities for people to do that kind of stuff, yes. is that going to affect and shape? the training and the skills that people are coming away with in the future that might be, again, available to, to clients that are out there. It seems like to me like that's, that's also shaping a, a good bit of what's happening here in the future. Well, it certainly drives, I mean, I'm, I'm an interested party. It certainly drives my business. I have a business of training and credentialing people in our own certification program. And that's, uh, you know, it's, there's quite a bit of interest in that. It's probably a record year for us because even though there's a lot of discouragement out there, there's a lot of people that want to go further with it. And yeah. maybe the bottom half, or I don't know what proportion, the bottom part of the market is getting is getting even more difficult to get into it. It's getting more difficult to get established. It's, the wages are lower than they were 10, 15 years ago. And yet mm-hmm. the top end of the market is, for at least in a lot of places, thriving. He's, yeah. he's really going for it. And furthering their education through this hunger for knowledge and this tradition, long tradition of continuing education. Yeah. So to me, that sort of speaks at when we get back to the opportunities of individuals looking at this particular realm is that if you can keep yourself from getting swept away in some perceptions uh, you know, of discouragement about where the field currently is or where it's possibly going, mm-hmm. there's a tremendous amount of opportunity to make not only a tremendous impact, but also a very successful financial model for yourself within this arena. There's no question it's it's possible. It's still possible and available to a lot of people to do that if they want to. Yeah. I um, mean, if they can find the, the, the right or, you know, setting. To, or to you can to say, yeah, work. if you can make it through the first five years of your practice or whatever yeah. that number is, the, mm-hmm. the future looks bright. There's, yeah. I, I, you know, every 
uh, class I teach, which is a couple times a month at least, I'm meeting people that are just having to deal with too much work. And so that's, mm-hmm. it's out there. And this is all across the country, all across the world, actually. Yeah. So it's out there. Yeah. It's just it's finding the way to uh, make it work for you in your situation. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of gets back to, again, something else that we were talking about in the previous episode, too, about um, individuals coming out of many of these training programs now um, without as much perception about an entrepreneurial model for what they're doing and looking for employment opportunities. Um, and it, you'd see as a, um, again, this is sort of a blanket generalization, but I would say that the majority of people who find themselves to be most financially successful um, in these fields are the ones that are able to find a pathway for themselves into that entrepreneurial world of either being their own solo practitioner or working for somebody else in a situation that works really well there or owning a clinic with other therapists there or being part of a group practice of some kind. That's interesting. But some form of entrepreneurial environment that seems to be, you know, um, more successful for them. Do you think that's a make or break? Do I need to be an entrepreneur to be, quote, successful? Absolutely not, yeah. because I know there's a lot of people who, you know, have, uh, work in a franchise environment and are extremely successful and love what they do in that particular model, per se. So it's not something that I think is by any means a requirement, but it, I would say that it is a trend of more people uh-huh. finding their own, uh, because it's not just about the financial end of it either. I think to for a lot of people, it's about the sense of um, personal control over their um business, their practice, their life, or whatever, that, that sense of uh, autonomy that people really love to have from an independent work situation. Well, I know in other in allied professions or parallel professions such as physical therapy, there's a big trend toward wanting a self-pay practice where you're essentially working for yourself and working for clients who can pay their own bills because that does yeah. provide a lot of freedom and gratification and better rewards. Right. So there's that, that similar kind of drive or desire incentive in our world, either body work or massage. And uh, and yet, it, we just, I just heard what we were saying, polarizing it into either franchising or entrepreneuring. Hmm. And there's a lot of places that I see people working that aren't franchises and on, on your own. There's people that have jobs they love and allows them to thrive and focus on what they want to do, which is their work without having to worry about running their own business and having their own website or whatever else that involves. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and there's lots of, and, and that's a good point too. I certainly wouldn't want to indicate that there's just those two ends of the spectrum because there's all sorts of gray area in between there of, uh, you know, different um, percentages of those different types of, uh, of of work environments. But I think they, each one of them poses a unique set of uh, both challenges and opportunities for for the people who, who are there. Mm-hmm. Or, or people yeah. like, I want to give her a shout out, Diane Matowski, who's doing, uh, what does she call her forum? Uh, massage mentor the, the, massage, the mentor. massage mentor uh-huh. she's really yeah. got a model where she's saying let's help those of you who want to be entrepreneurial do it go for it mm-hmm. run a business yeah. and hire some people and make that work on that level too yeah she's not trying to start a whole chain of franchises she's saying let's help you really be the organizer for some talent in your area to make this work for everyone yeah yeah good well we probably got time for just maybe a couple more quick ones in here you've got anything else uh Big challenges and opportunities. That, oh boy, my turn already. Okay. Yeah. Uh, did we did we get into your credentialing one enough? You mentioned that we didn't. I was going to kind of maybe say we'll wrap up with one of those, so okay. I can jump off on that, or we can do it after you do it, whichever you like. There. 
No, I think if I looked down my list, I had discouragement. I had the consolidation and upscaling. That's a concern What's, I hear a lot. Tell me what well, that's about. Well, we've hit what some that? of that. The people have concerns yeah. about the emergence of franchising as a model or the emergence of big schools coming in and buying up smaller massage schools as a model. Yeah. I, when we did our poll in social media about people's concerns to get some topics to talk about here, that emerged as a pretty frequent one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's complex because um, there's good and bad, let's put it that way. It's yeah. difficult to, I mean, one, the, it drives down prices. When you get the economies of scale, that involves driving down prices for the consumers, which means there's less to pay practitioners. And there's also middlemen involved who take a cut. So that's the bad side. The upside is that it makes it more available. There's more people, arguably, who have access to it and can get involved in it as well. It becomes mm-hmm. more, in, more woven into the fabric of our culture and more the, it becomes more accessible to more people. Yeah, right. Uh, it's the same concerns, though, that happen with globalization. It means there's movement of people, there's movement of resources and movement of interest. And that means movement away from some areas. It gets more difficult. And then there's movement in. We're having people come into this country. And I know they just traveling in Europe, there's a lot of cross-border travel in the body work community for people that go to where people pay more. And there's a lot of concern uh, amongst people in the country when they see people coming into their country to take jobs and are willing to take less. So that's a complex yeah. topic in itself. Right. And that's, yeah. that's in our field. It's not something that we... Mm tend to talk about a whole lot, but certainly emerged in those polls that we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's just like any system. You see uh, any system as it grows and evolves, growing into increasing levels of complexity. Um, and it's it's kind of hard to move away from that sometimes. So that's that's going to be a natural part of its, its evolution, it seems. And yes, and the double-edged sword of opportunity opening up, yeah. and yet the potential for exploitation, because the real shadow side of that is really the human trafficking, where it starts yeah. to bleed over into sex work, or there's not a clear yeah. line, let's say. That's not the only reason it can be exploitive either, that um, while many therapists working abroad see as an opportunity, we, you know, we know there's lots of situations where people feel indentured or trapped into those situations too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, God, I certainly would not have predicted, you know, 10, 15 years ago that we would have seen those kinds of things um, per, so pervasive for us having to deal with those in, in our field now. But it's just, it's it's become a crazy, it's become a crazy world, um, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, well, yeah, so let me, uh, one other thing I was going to chime in on here, too, on our challenges and, and uh opportunities uh, is around credentialing issues, as uh, you alluded to earlier. So I brought this up as one that I think it's it's an uncomfortable subject for a lot of people to talk about because it really taps into some of what you were speaking of earlier, of some of the divisiveness and polarization that exists. But, you know, one of our big issues that we have just in our cultures in general is that we usually like to have some degree of certainty or a way to ascertain that people have a certain level of skill or capabilities when they're doing something that's related to, let's say, you know, addressing somebody's health concerns. So, for example, we have licensure laws in most states because we've determined that manual therapy has the the potential for harm and therefore there's a reason for licensing individuals for protecting public safety. So that's the initial level of 
of uh, licensure for protecting public safety, but that's generally where it ends. Um, and the big challenge I think that we have around a lot of the credentialing issues is it's still very difficult to know. Uh, let's say some uh, healthcare organization or you know a, a large-scale group or organization that wants to try to employ massage therapists with specialized skills for you know, let's say working in a sports environment or working in a, a rehabilitation uh, clinic of some kind or working uh, with, you know, cancer patients. Mm-hmm. There is no way to know um, who has specialized training in those areas because we don't have any standardized credentials to indicate that people have accomplished certain competencies or capabilities in those different areas. And there's been some effort to kind of move in that direction with some of the the credentialing organizations, the National Certification Board has been doing that to some degree. But again, until there is widespread adoption of these guidelines or perspectives or, uh, or pro- credentialing programs, there's still a great degree of ambiguity out there of what, what does a person's training mean and how do you tell the difference between the individual who's fresh out of school and the individual with uh, 15 to 20 years of experience because there really is no other way to, to identify that. Yes. Well, I know that's an area where you've worked hard and moved some solutions forward and are still looking for ways to further that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's been one of those things that we've been working on for decades, and it seems like it's just a never-ending thing because we see a lot of the same um, you know, arguments and um, discussions and things come up over and over again. But uh, the problems seem to remain. The same problems seem to remain there. And so those are, at the same time, they are... Um, our challenges. I think there's a great opportunity there for us to see some kinds of um, creative credentialing happening in the future. I'm very excited about a lot of the things that are happening um, in the world of like the movement towards micro credentials, which is the you know the idea uh, in in many traditional academic programs. Just as an example, you see this a lot in like a software world or something like that, where um, a degree an academic college degree might uh, indicate a broad base range of skills, but it doesn't really indicate that that person is skilled uh, in Photoshop or that they are skilled in you know, operating a particular accounting program or something like that. And these smaller programs, which do micro-credentials, might say, hey, this person has done this highly specialized training program and they have accomplished this set group of competencies or skills and abilities, and that's how they have earned this particular mini or micro-credential. And these kinds of things, to me, seem like a way out. These seem like, to me, the, the opportunity that comes out of this to be able to have some recognition of more specialized micro-credentials if they highlight and indicate uh, what they what are the real core competencies that they're that they're supposedly representing so um, I, I hope that we might see more of this kind of stuff develop in the future along those kinds of lines with some degrees of, of standardization of those micro credentials as well yeah no I'm I think that fits with the move toward the way people want to learn and use their time for sure too yeah and like I said I know you've worked hard on this and I think that we've all benefited from the work you and other people have been do- doing in this field. And so even though that in my trainings and the people that come to my trainings are finding success on their own, I think it is something that we owe our gratitude for to help think about the field as a whole and the ways that it can be supported across the board, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I would certainly agree there. So, uh, well, these, you know, this will probably kind of, at least for the for the little bit here, wrap up some of our 
um, look at or in inquiry into some of the big challenges and opportunities that are facing us. And for our listeners, please feel free to chime in to give us some more input that you see, other things that uh, might be challenges and opportunities. We may, of course, revisit this topic uh, again in future episodes as well. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll take, that, um, take that and see where, where it goes from here. But I would like to say a special thanks to our sponsors for um, sponsoring our show here today and encourage everyone else to uh, stop by our site for show notes, CE credit updates, and any extras over there. You can find us at thethinkingpractitioner.com. And you can also find uh, transcripts of our uh, episodes and other information on our sites. Till, where can people find you and, and other those, links to this? Yeah, those you? come out on our blog from advanced-trainings.com. How about yours, Whitney? And they'll also be over on our site at the academyofclinicalmassage.com. So, yeah, those questions, keep them coming, input, thoughts. I bet there's going to be some social media discussion around these topics. Still look forward to that. But you can always yeah. email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com. And like we said, anywhere on social media you find us. That sounds great. And if you would, please uh, take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to your podcast. That does help people learn about the show. Uh, Tell a friend that's there and uh, look forward to having some other great discussions with you. Yeah, we're going to dive into some nuts and bolts. I know we have some technical topics. We have some body-mind topics lined up, um, some interviews. Look forward to all of those. That sounds great. Well, until uh, next go-round, we'll um, see what else comes boiling up of the pot, and we'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks, Whitney. See you later. Okay. Take care.